and welcome to episode 41 of the Wizards of Drivel podcast. It's a packed show this week as not only will we have our usual post-match analysis, we've also got Martin Cook talking about the myths of Stoke history, a chat with Sentinel reporter Pete Smith and an interview with Stoke promotion winner Leon Court. Joining me this week is Chris Brammer. Hello David. And it's a long overdue recall for Bear Pit blogger Ben Rowley. I hope everyone. Uh, you're alright guys? Well, I mean... <laughs> it's another Sunday morning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, football's a bit rubbish on days like today. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, re- I really didn't want to do this podcast because I don't know if I have anything anything oh, to add. No, 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 no. But but I'm here and I'm committed, so let's do this. Yeah, let's go. Yes. Right, so West Brom. At the highest ground in the country, Saido Berahino has a nasty trip. James Morrison gives us something that makes us scared all right, and two Welshmen fall out over a leak. Chris, where to begin? Um, I, I think, for me, we begin at the fact that this is another game where we've not been able to defeat Tony Pulis. Uh, we can't get rid of that demon. Um, and it, it's just bloody typical, isn't it? I mean, Mark Hughes alluded to the fact in the in the pre-match press conference that he, oh, I've got... I've got a, pull, a, a bad record against Tony Pulis, and uh, that's something we look to address. Yeah, it, w- it weren't going to happen yesterday. Um, and it was a typical Tony Pulis match in the sense that it, there was there was time-wasting and there was trickery and shindigs and whatever else, <laughs> and it annoyed people, and it, and it was just really, really frustrating. I think what, it was frustrating because... We were god awful in the first half, and frustrating because in the second half, it it, it was just never going to happen for us. You knew as soon as that uh, Morrison goal went in that all right, game over. Then see you later. I kind of gave up a little bit. It it was a frustrating afternoon because God, do I want to beat West Brom and God, do I want to beat Tony Pulis? Like, I, take take like. I don't know, Midland rivalry out of this. I really just want to put that ghost to bed that we've beaten him. We never beat him when he were at Palace. We've never beaten him when he's been at West Brom. In fact, I read a stat that we'd not beaten a Tony Pulis side since 1992. Now, granted, he spent quite a considerable amount of time here uh, during those years (laughs) after that, but... Oh my god, how annoying. Yeah, it's not even like he's uh, been managing especially good sides, is it? Like... I know West Brom are doing better than us this season, but last season they weren't any great shakes at all, and we and we still lost twice then. Uh, yeah, it's just a kind of ghost you want to lay to rest, isn't it? Uh, just some three-word responses compiled from Twitter, of course. Uh, we've had no positive ones, so <laughs> as you as you might expect, the the most positive one is not to use his fault. Oh wow. Well. <laughs> There you go. Uh, others include bring back Bojan, forget seventh lads, absolutely no penetration, season's now over, Hughes is clueless, someone take responsibility, no cutting edge, I need beer, unacceptably <laughs> poor again, and Hughes out now, uh, which, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try not to get into it. It's back. <laughs> it's back again. <laughs> We've had a few weeks without it, and now it's back. Um. Right, just before I talk to you, Ben, here is a clip from our roving reporter at the Hawthorne. It's the ever, ever increasingly depressed sounding Lucian Finch. 
Oh, lads. Uh, really disappointing, you know. I came, I've seen five games now here. I haven't seen a win. Um, two games when I came last, came last time, didn't see a win there either. You know, it's a bit annoying. Uh, probably won't come back here for about at least five years, I think. But um, anyway, you know, we just played pretty poorly. Um, I think it was the lineup from the start. We just had no mobility in the midfield, and we'll kind of do from that. We didn't look knackered. I had a great game the other night, but I think it was knackered too. We just needed rotation, really. Um, and maybe in Bully to play, you know, just some, someone a bit faster with a bit more quality. But yeah, you know, um, what can you do? Uh, yeah, anyway, thanks to everyone for making me feel welcome here. It's been yeah, a great two months, and uh, yeah, out the potters. Okay, th- thanks, Lucian. Uh, ben, is our season over? Um, it depends what you mean by is the season over. I mean, no, because if we don't perform like we know we can do, we're going to fall even further. So I, we probably can't get seventh now because West Brom and Everton are too far away. It'd take a big slip up for them, and I can't see that. So we need to get ninth place again, and... I still think that that would be a decent achievement, really. I mean, if you put it into perspective, that's being the ninth best team in England, like, again. And mm. a lot of teams can't manage that. You know, you talk about West Brom, how they do go up and down. We we don't have that. So it's hard to push on when there's so many good teams above us, or there seems to be every season, but we just don't have that season where we push on. And I guess it's through a number of things, whether it's injuries, whether it's just playing badly, or a certain thing that's going on in the club, I don't know. But uh, the season's not over because we need to fight for what's going on. There's opportunities to bring new players into the team. We've got to convince certain players that, like in the summer, we need to be able to convince to bring new players in with good football. So our season's not over because we need that stability and that platform there to push on next season. Yeah. Looking at the game yesterday on its own, the big worry I have with the current 11 is that it's just too slow in midfield. Yeah. And there's not not enough creativity, there's not enough forward momentum, if you like. It's coming back to what we've talked about for ages now on the podcast, which is, We've spent a lot of money on midfield and £21 million to sit on the bench and £13 million of supposedly a box-to-box midfielder is playing as number 10. Uh, I don't know. What do you do to address that, really, given that we're not going to sign anyone else? <laughs> you play the players in the right positions for a start. I don't want to see E.B. Afalai on the right wing ever again. It- <laughs> Yeah. He, he used to be a winger, didn't he? He'd be Afalai, I think, yeah. Barcelona. Whether he's just lost any pace with age or... I, his crossing was diabolical. I think he tried seven and completed none. For a <laughs> winger, that's that's terrible. Mm. And when you got Crouch in the box, you know, he's not mm. a particularly hard thing to aim at. He's the biggest player outfield in the Premier League, isn't he? So if you can't hit him, he's not going to hit anybody. As, as for Arnie, he's never been that kind of player to play on the wings and cross it in. Yeah, he'll lay out that goal for the 100th goal for Peter Crouch just along the floor, but he's never been that player to continually cross that ball in. And when you got Crouch up front, that seems barbaric. Same old things yeah. 
time after time. It's a it's a really poor half uh, doing for us. It's an inability to have two good halves in one match. It's a inability to create enough decent chances. We had one really good chance right at the end with Eric Peters, which we really should have scored. That More was, like Eric, that <laughs> Eric fifty Peters. Am I right? Like that oh, that, that, that yeah, header yeah. was absolutely like. It went further wide than it did forwards. How did he manage that? <laughs> yeah. uh, I I think I think for me it's I, I understand that we're we're a team who are, is going to be inconsistent because that's just the the nature of the players that we have. We're not if we were consistent we would be challenging at the top side of the table and we're not. I think the the frustrating thing for me is that the likes of Charlie Adam and Glenn Whelan, although saying that, I don't think Glenn Whelan had a particularly awful game. But Charlie Adam can be a game changer, to use phrases that are often used to describe him. But he can also be um, a, a player who just can make it seem like you're playing with 10 men. He When, when he's bad, he is so bad. And I think yesterday was, was one of those days where he was... He was he was frustrating in how he plays, um, which I, I and I know that that's just going to be players are going to be inconsistent. We get that complaint about Arnie and Shakiri all the time, but um, I don't know with a role that is so crucial in midfield, you kind of feel like you need something a bit more solid. Even so, even when they have an average game, that they're doing the right things. I don't know. Like yeah. you, like you say, there's 21 million pounds on the bench, and uh, we're still playing players that Tony Pulis signed, who are in their thirties. And I don't see a situation where Mark Hughes changes that. Now, it's an it's an inability to adapt to a striker again, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like we 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 said this when we had Juve, uh, or we're not playing enough through balls to Juve. Uh, we signed Boney, who's like 20 yards slower than him. And then we tried to do that, and it do- obviously doesn't work. Then we tried to uh, lump balls up to him. doesn't really work because he's not that good. Um, and, then we, and, then, and then we play Crouch. We've been crouching to the side. Play two inverted wingers and sort of hit the ball up a bit more. And it works to an extent because Crouch, Crouch is working hard. He, he's, he's good in the air and all that. And so we bring Sido off the bench. And just do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it goes back to this thing of not having an identity as a team. Mm. I was like, what, what, what's our style? What, what do we play? Because I can't make it out. One week we can be, uh, all right, we're very possession based. Uh, try and use the wingers, yeah. but the next we're lumping up to Crouch. Hughes is just like lost <laughs> the, the 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 spark yeah. that made us so good when we were playing very good. Yeah, I mean, which is just frustrating as hell. So so frustrating. I mean, I don't know. I it must be frustrating for the players as well because, like you say, there is no real identity. So how does is that message then conveyed by the coaching staff of how they want the team to play? What is the I don't know. What is the the style that has been taught in in training? It, you're right. It just feels very much like. We we wing it from week to week almost, which is very annoying because, as fans, we therefore cannot predict what's going to happen at, <laughs> at any match. Like when we went to Sunderland, Dave, despite me being convinced uh, that we were going to win, it could have easily been a, another 
four nil lost like Palace, you just don't know what's going to happen. At, yeah, at a yeah, game. That's do you? the thing. Idiots like us get really critical when we do lose and and we lose without <laughs> uh, you know seemingly having a game plan, and then we'll turn up and and beat. You know, Sunderland three one. It was like, oh, what are you worried about? Come on, guys, just get off the <laughs> yeah. backs. You know, it's like yeah. I, I, I would be, I would be like so much more happy and enthusiastic if I had a confidence beforehand. Like, yeah, I just, I just want a relaxing afternoon watching Stoke. But it makes the game like a lottery. You want that excitement, right? You want to go to a game thinking, oh, what am I going to see? What's my emotion going to be tonight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. You don't right, get a well, nil-nil very often. Put it that true. way. Um, I have an email from Tom Thrower, still determined to be involved, despite uh, not being invited on this week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom, in his usual happy-go-lucky attitude, begins, well, wasn't that just dreadful? Is this really what we loaned, is this really what we loaned Beauchamp and dropped in Beulah for? Since roughly this time last year, Hughes has been shifting from the dynamic passing football to the one-dimensional direct style we currently play. Okay, that's our style. Okay. Is it helping our results? No, we have gone from beating those only those in dire form and no longer look able to beat a good side. Is it helping our lead position? No, we're 11th and very lucky to remain in the top half for so long. Ninth is the best we can hope for this season. So overall, it seems that Hughes has changed the system and alienated key players to a point where they want to leave, all for the result of, at best, being where we were last year and at worst, regressing. Is there much point in keeping him any longer? We will almost certainly be go- He will almost certainly be gone in the summer. And if he's not, I'm very worried as to what will happen after that. Strong prediction there. I'm, I'm, I'm still not sure Coates thinks the same way. I no. think... Even if we finish 12th, say, and, you know, we, we sort of have a mediocre end of the season, I, th- I still think he'll stick by him because mm-hmm. he's invested too much money in him not to stick by him. And on the face of it, like 9th, 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 12th is still decent. Yeah. And as long as we're not, you know, too far down the table, I think and Coates will back his man. And I think that it will be looked at and it will be if if we if we only beat those teams who are below us and we don't beat like those above us but we still finish mid table it will still be see you, you know that there'll be the compared things of well look we've got similar amount of wins and similar amount of points and all this type of stuff it i don't think the performances will be looked at in too much detail it will be more result i i think as well um you we we shared that email didn't we dave on facebook um mm. that uh, a fan called des has sent in now yes. it, I, it, I, it, i'll just read i'll read from that actually now if you want um it's a very long email uh, go to our facebook page to read it in its entirety because it is like a, an article long read all on its own yes. it is it is really well written and well argued and it's not just the uh, uh oh who's going to get in lol just um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> But he, he suggests uh, things how to improve. Um, slow starts, these can be expected and take a couple of games. However, this can't be an excuse every season. I think he needs to either get the players together early and roll out all his ideas earlier so we start quicker or a more intensive pre-season programme as I don't know what is going on behind the scenes. Um, continue transfers of better players and slowly bring them into the squad. And that's more competition at full-back, more depth up front, and retaining the current crop of players is essential. There are other players out there, and we can look abroad for this. 
Give Hughes a time and, and a break. Going against every decision he makes and expressing disappointment in every general decision doesn't back him or the team. They don't want to be performing badly and like I want to express in it. They don't want to be performing badly and in this environment I for one will stand by him and the team. So let's give him time and a chance next season and until his contract. I think Hughes fully deserves until 2019 when his contract expires and if it's not working then by all means let's see who can take us further to develop as a club and keep on pushing. Wow. Go, yeah, go back to uh, reading the full email on our Facebook page because it is generally very interesting. Um, go on, Chris. No, yeah. So what I, what I was after reading that email, I think what what kind of convinced me to that argument is that you know what we are in a crop of teams that from I don't know seventh through to twelfth, it's not a lottery as to where you finished, but you know teams will have good seasons and bad seasons and that's not to say that it's um, a bad season, suddenly this bad season is going to be replicated next year or or whatever. I I do kind of agree that maybe for the I, I don't want to become a team where managers are chopped and changed and replaced over a few bad results. Not that this that if we got rid of Mark Hughes, that would be what this is. But I do think that perhaps give him time, let him try and change the core of this team from old guard to new. I don't know. I still just have blind faith that things can get better. And I don't <laughs> know why, because there is no evidence to prove it. But I, just, I, I, I want Mark Hughes to succeed. And I want Stoke to play as good as we can do, and mm. and I want. I'm, oh, I'm just fed up of all the the partisan hatred. It's just really yeah. annoying. <clears throat> do, do, I mean, the internet's not the best place for a reasonable discussion at the best of times. But <laughs> just like during the week, just like uh, how childish people can get over you know football arguments is. Mm. Really quite astonishing at times. Uh, D, and on that note, on partisanship on the internet, Chris, do you have a poll of the week for us? Yes, I did I did have a poll of the week. Um, I only asked one question, though. Uh, and I, I purposely want to avoid arguments over Hughes out and Hughes in. And so I'll ask it to you guys first. Just a, mm. a, the simple question of, not this season, but on an, any given season from now, where would you expect Stoke to finish? Well, what is the the bracket of places where you would expect this Stoke team to be in the table? Now, I divided it between top six, seventh through to tenth, or eleventh through to fifteenth. I think, given the squad at his disposal and the resources at his disposal, uh, and the progress he himself is responsible for over the past few seasons. So this is thanks to the good job Mark Hughes has done. I would hope that this current Stoke team would finish in the top 10. So 7th to 10th. Okay. Ben, would you agree? Um, Yeah. I mean, 100%. We've got the players which, you know, we've got some players which could be seen above us. We've got some players which could seem below us I know that's like a lot of teams but we're in that kind of we're certainly not going to get relegated so we shouldn't be in that bottom portion and 
the money that and and the talent that's in that top six, there's absolutely unless we have a breakthrough Leicester season, but I don't want to get towards that. That's not going to happen. It, yeah, it's got to be that middle portion of the table. That's what we've realistically got to achieve. And 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 I would completely agree, and so would the vast majority of people who voted in this this poll. Now, I'd say in that, then I think there sh- there has to be an acceptance that there are also another group of teams who are also challenging for that position. Yeah. And I don't know, like. Are they going to sack their manager if they don't get seventh? And, no, and probably if we, not. <laughs> and if and if we if we got tenth rather than ninth, would that be considered a failure? Do you know, like, I, no, yeah, no, it wouldn't. Not 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 for me anyway. Yeah, and I don't want it. I don't want it to sound like oh, these youngsters they don't remember what it was like when we played Rotherham, but. It, I, I, I think a, a crucial, <laughs> a crucial sense of like perspective, is welcomed because, I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't that long ago that we would celebrate a nil-nil draw against Chelsea at the Brit, and and now there's almost an expectation that we are, oh, oh Chelsea rolled us over and oh we should have been putting up a fight and like I I don't know I, I know that expectations and views on the team change as shown by the fact that we think we should be finishing in that uh, mid-table upper mid-table bracket but yeah yeah and like I said that's down to Mark Hughes's uh, progression of the club as well so Mark Hughes doing a good job will raise expectations that's just the nature of football the better you do the more you expect and I think oh sorry but I think other teams who've come in and done a really really stellar job have also like frustrated us and made expectations um mm. change because i mean like southampton is the case in point and southampton is the the club that is always brought up as that's what we want to be like um you know they came into the division after us and they're all, they're now seemingly regularly challenging for europe but i think the 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 stoke, stoke fans or just fans in general seem to neglect the fact that Southampton have an incredible behind the scenes setup a setup that we don't have it's therefore it's going to take us a while to become that type of team that Southampton is yeah. a, a good sense of perspective is all I'm saying yeah and I think I think you're perfectly right in, in a lot of points you make there I think the frustrating thing at the moment is knowing we are better than we are. Like as as yeah. we said there, we both we all think, given our current squad of players, that we should be top ten. And at the moment, we're eleventh. And if you think that Watford and Burnley are ahead of us, uh, teams we've uh, we've we've won every game we've played against those two teams so far. And I don't think Watford are any good at all. And yet they're still um, picking up points or in in the top half of the table. So frustration comes from uh, thinking you should be better than these teams. And of course, you, you, you're going to have some degree of fluctuation. I don't think we can hope to be ninth forever. And back to the West Brom game then. Uh, a big drama again with Mark Hughes, Tony Pulis and handshakes. Like, <laughs> Is anyone else just like sick of this? It's very childish, isn't it? It just seems... It's, I mean, it's the whole the, the whole build-up to the match was very childish. The whole... Berahino leak fest which mm. just reminded me of an episode of the thick of it it was just all 
uh, it, it's just uh, I, again uh, it's just absolute absolute shit housing it's um uh, yeah i i understand mark hughes's frustration but bloody hell grow up lads it's it's ridiculous it, it does seem to be like childish arguments, doesn't it? I'm I'm sure that Tony Pulis is a little bitter about Mark Hughes taking his job, like like <laughs> I, on yeah. a personal level. And and to be fair, when when the game did finish, I, I think Pulis did shake hands with one of the members of our staff. I know that yeah. Hughes was on the touchline still, but I think there is probably that personal stigma. Like, and that's fine to have, I suppose. I know you got to be professional, but and and on the other side, Mark Hughes will be disappointed. About the Barahino leak, and he'll think it's all fun and games, and so it does seem to be. A... Yeah, I can see the reasons I... behind whether the child is dispute, but I mean, you're big man now, I, lads. I... Come on, <laughs> I'd love to see. Have you guys seen the Damned United? I'd love to yeah. see um, a Clough Revy style uh, TV interview yeah. with the pair of them, where yeah. they just like get it all out in the open. But yeah. yeah. Um, I've sort of posed this question to Twitter. A lot of people have said, like, I've lost all respect for Pulis, which I think is going a bit too far, really. I think mm. Pulis is definitely a bit of a git. No, he's, he's definitely <laughs> a git. And uh, I think I think this uh, Berahino leak situation is really poor. I mean, the, the, there's no, like, confirmation that West Brom have leaked this, but it's all, the, for me, all the evidence points towards it, doesn't it? Yeah, you've, yeah. Got, you've got, like... Um, and, and considering the FA has has a policy of uh, not disclosing like recreational drug bans, for West Brom to do that is really poor. Not yeah. condoning what Sido did, but it's a quite interesting response that like most of the time when the player has a drugs ban, there's a big kind of moral outrage going on. But uh, th- there hasn't seemed to have been that. Uh, certainly not in anything I've read. I think it's because everybody's completely fed up of Sido Barahino. He's been yeah, in the papers yeah, for about yeah. three years now, so who gives a damn anymore? Let him do what he wants. Yeah. Um, we'll just have uh, one more email. I'll just kind of sum it up. and It's another really long one, which I'll also put on the Facebook page. Uh, from a listener called Michael in Canada, who uh, sends us some very, very nice wishes, but... Uh, he says, I think there are objective goals that we can use to measure Hughes' performance. I'd also like to think most Stoke fans would agree that these objectives are, one, successful cup runs, two, challenging for Europe, and three, setting up the team through transfers and development. So objectively, how is Hughes done? Cup runs? Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> challenging for Europe? Uh, no. Um, transfers? Uh, he argues, yeah, on the whole, we, we have improved the, the the makeup of the team. Uh, Berahino's a nice addition. Bruno Martins Indy's been an off-the-chart success. Uh, even Grant, who was kind of an emergency signing, has, has developed into you know a really, really good keeper. So that's one of his three objectives for Hughes Met, which on the whole isn't that a glowing criticism. Uh, but... Like, like you said there, if his objectives are successful cup runs, challenging for Europe and continual improvement of the team through transfers, it goes back to what you were saying, Chris. These objectives are wildly different to the objectives that Tony Pulis would have had when he came yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Like, like even just the word Europe in there is like alien to some of us. Just like, <laughs> we've got no right to expect that kind of thing. So, 
Uh, it is a good email. I'll put it out on the uh, Facebook page, and that's good. Um, yeah, any other thoughts on this game and where we go from here, Ben? For me, it's going back a little bit to the poll that Chris ran and the whole where do we finish. Um, as long as we don't drop into the big pit down the bottom portion, then it, it, it goes back again to expectations and perception. I mean, it's not going to look any worse if we finish 7th or 11th to anybody else. It's not. The only things that are going to change what people are going to think about is, is if we go into a relegation scrap or if we properly, properly challenge for Europe and, and get into Europe. Otherwise, people like Lineker on Match Today are going to say, oh yeah, Stoke are doing all right. They're consistently where they are. Like, <laughs> finishing 7th or finishing 11th isn't the end of the world. I just don't want us to get any worse. And I can't see us doing that, to be honest. If we want to push for Europe, there's certain things we've got to do. And I agree with what other people have said before, it's going to take time. We've not got the youth set up like other teams have. We've perhaps not got the certain transfer policy that other teams have. It, mm. In terms of the West Brom game, again, yes, it was poor, but we've been poor and bounced back before, so I'm not looking at that too harshly either. In terms of the season, just just keep going. <laughs> just keep going. Just make sure that we don't okay. completely yeah. ruin ourselves. Would you say that Hughes has the fans on side? Because it's it's very tempting to see the volume of comments on social media and think, well, Hughes has lost the fan base now. But mm. you, if you know, the were, biggest he... thing for me when sorry when um when Tony Pulis left, it, it's because. The, se- the number of season tickets that were sold in kind of March time, the early birds, dropped significantly. Yeah. Understandably, because of the style of football we were playing, we were losing against teams like Aston Villa. Oh, mm. that was an awful game. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I, I... The only... Peter Coates is a fan of Stoke City, and it's very rare that you get a chairman that is a fan mm. of the club as well. So he won't just knee-jerk at a poor season, but he will react if other fans like him are not supporting the club as much yeah. as they did anymore and that will be Hughes's last nail in the coffin if fans if we don't sell season tickets in March then yeah he'll probably leave but I can't see us doing that quite yet it'll take possibly a bad season next season for that to happen we can all say oh I want Mark Hughes out but the question is is Peter Coates going to get rid of him Probably not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we go, uh, we'll have uh, a brand new, uh, hopefully not that long feature called uh, <laughs> Stoke, uh, Stoke tweets in the style of Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so by all I means, by all means, uh, get these in after the Palace game. Uh, it's going to be a great game. We're going to win bigly. <laughs> I'm not going to do the voice because I can't uh, Michael Forbes the opinions of so-called fans are very bad Post- podcasters do not have our best interests at heart happy to see <laughs> us lose sad <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Margit says 
Build a great wall to keep Charlie Adam away from the starting eleven. Make Stoke great again. Period. <laughs> and uh, Tom throws back in touch. There are some very bad hombres in our side, and the crooked Mark Hughes keeps letting them in. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dave, this is going to do nothing to dispel the myth of us being a liberal left-wing podcast. Uh, <laughs> I'm now joined by Sentinel journalist Pete Smith. Uh, Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, yeah, no, it's nice to be on. How long have you been covering Stoke, then? Um... Well, I joined the Sentinel in 2011 on the sports desk. So I did um, a few matches here and there and press conferences and what have you uh, before I took over from Mike Bagley. I went to cover Paul Vale in the summer that Hughes was appointed. So it was me and Hughes came at the same time, really. Uh, the big shift. Um, yeah, the, the, the opportunity opened up and I was in the right place at the right time. And how did you get started in sort of football writing, football journalism in general? Is it something you'd always wanted to do? Uh, well, it, it was when I was a kid. I grew up as a Stoke fan, thinking that'd be brilliant. Um, a dream job, really, covering Stoke. But when when I got older, I just thought, well, it's the, it's the white elephant, really. <laughs> Nobody gets to have that kind of job. But I wanted to be a journalist, so I started being a, um, a news reporter. Uh, at the Post and Times in Leek and Cheadle and Toxeter. And I moved over to the Sentinel. And when I moved over to the Sentinel, the editor said he wanted me to be um, to, come, to work on sport. And you know, I was a big football fan. And then, it, yeah, like I said, it was just being in the right place at the right time when the opportunity rose up. Uh, because I think the Sentinel's only had six full-time Stoke reporters since the war. It's, uh, the, the, the opportunity really doesn't come up very often. Wow. And yeah, I, I got lucky. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, working for a local paper, I imagine it's may- maybe slightly different to covering Stoke anywhere else, really. Um, do you ever feel under any pressure to portray the club uh, more positively? Uh, it's an interesting um, situation, really. I mean, the, it's obvious that the, the national guys can write stories knowing that they're not going to have to speak to the manager again for at least a couple of weeks. We need a, a constant relationship, and same with players as well. But it's built on trust, I think. You, you, as long as you're not going out of your way to, to be difficult, hopefully people can understand that you, you're, trying, you're trying to do your job as honestly as you can. We're lucky in that we are in a, a pretty good place. I mean, everything's perfect, but uh, for the last 10 years it's been... A pretty successful story, so we haven't had to be completely negative at any point, really. Um, I'm, I think we'd, have, we'd do it if, if the need arose. Uh, there, there are certain situations which which you can't duck, uh, but overall, the, the picture is pretty positive. And if we if we were reporting negatively on Stoke at the moment, then we probably wouldn't be doing a very good job. Okay. Um... You mentioned there that you're a Stoke fan. Is there a trick to get sort of getting sort of detached from how you might feel as a fan and writing kind of more impartially? <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not sure if I know it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the look, uh, the, the um, where I'm lucky is that it's Stoke fans who are going to be reading the Sentinel. I'm, I'm not writing for 
a national audience. I'm writing for people who who are, who, who want to read the opinion of, of a, a local journalist. I think from the Stoke perspective, I'm trying to stay objective as, as much as I can, but it is quite difficult sometimes. Um, I feared when I when I joined that I, I would have a, a blind spot. Um, it, 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 it is difficult in certain situations, but the the, the whole of the Stoke press contingent really is are Stoke fans, and you can get away with a fist pump when they score a goal. If you can't jump up and down and hug each other, and you can't discriminate the ref every time. Um, yeah, so it, it, it can be difficult. Uh, I, I think sometimes it helps as well. I know uh, some of the players perhaps know that we have Stoke leanings, that they appreciate that, that we're on their side, and they might be more open to talking to us than, than perhaps um, national guys. I know yesterday I was able to talk to players when national guys uh, were able to. So maybe it helps in that perspective. Yeah, um, players and managers these days, everyone says they're, like, they, they're always very guarded, they, they've, clubs give them media training. Is that something that kind of bothers you? Do you would you rather that um, players could talk more freely or do you just kind of accept it as part of the job? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because every time a player does talk freely, then they get criticised normally, saying that there's no place for that. If, if anybody says something which isn't conventional, then it gets seized upon. That's probably why players go into the shell as much as any kind of media training. Any time they say something interesting, it's, it's blown almost completely out of proportion. Mm. Um, it, it is good to have an opinion. And I think there are a few, a few Stoke players who, who are good at not saying the obvious. I'm quite lucky in that respect, um, all the way through the team. There's some experienced guys in there. Um, I, I like interviewing Shawcross and Arnautovic is, is a fantastic interviewee. Uh, Charles Adam uh, occasionally says uh, some interesting stuff. Crouch is good. Yeah, we've, we've got a, a fair share of players who, who don't always toe the line. Um, they've, they've got opinions. A lot of them are, are real football thinkers. Um, so, yeah, it's easy to be known sometimes that uh, players don't have anything interesting to say, but then sometimes you've got to look at the questions as well. Sometimes they're given an easy way out and you just say, oh, you deserve to win that. Um, and what, what can they say? What What's your sort of relationship with Mark Hughes like? Because um, the impression I get from post-match interviews, which uh, granted are different to press conferences, which I can't really uh, watch all the time, is that he's a very, very stern man, very sort of uh, plain spoken. Um, you don't really get to see much of a lighter side to him. Is he is he like that with the sort of the press pack? Uh, most of the time, probably. Uh, the the time that he, he lets his hair down and gets more relaxed, just, uh, at the end of the press conferences, he has a, a section just for written press, and he, he kind of rela- he, he relaxes in that situation. I think he trusts the people who are in there. It's, it's a pretty close knit group. Um, you don't have many people who who he won't know going into that kind of atmosphere, so you can trust the guys who are there and and. It's a shame that you don't have the kind of relationship where you can pick up the phone to him um, and ask him stuff, or he can tell you stuff and have a better relationship in that respect. But I think that's the case across the Premier League. I know even at West Brom, where Tony Pulis for 10 years was on the phone to the Sentinel at least once a week, 
West Brom, even the, the local papers don't have that kind of relationship with him anymore. So I, th- I think it's a uh, it's a sad sad way to be really with your manager. I thought managers would always have a good relationship with you with your local press. Um, I'm not saying we've got a bad relationship with Hughes. It's just a, a different one than perhaps managers from the past. Um, he's, he's a good guy. I think he, he he should be able to trust us by now. We've been with him for for three and a half years. Um, he's done a good job. Uh, we've, we've covered that well. Um, are there any sort of highlights from from your time covering covering Stoke? It, it does. Do your happy memories of covering Stoke sort of coincide with when we play well? <laughs> yeah, like like today. I, I, uh, the bad, the worst part about the job is that after a match you can't just switch off and just forget about football for a few days, which I've wanted to do. Most of the time after we've lost um, this morning, still talking about this West Brom game. Goodness sake! Yeah, sorry. Just want to get this out of the way <laughs> and move on and, and get on with the rest of my life. But it, there's a uh, time that I, there's a crossover between my private life and, and my work life. Um, but for the most part, that's that's a good thing. Um, the, the best parts, yeah, when when Stoke do well, um, and we've had we've had a few days like that, haven't we? The, the Liverpool game um, being being a being a great one. Um, so yeah, some, some happy days. Um, and uh, there was a fear when when I um, made the switch between a fan to being a reporter that I'd meet the players and and they'd be they wouldn't be very nice. And you'd think, oh, why do I have to support this team with them playing? But in fact, they're a pretty nice set, um, pretty funny, pretty relaxed, um, and pretty friendly. So it's all right. Yeah. Um, talk about Stoke at the moment then. Obviously, disappointing result yesterday. Um, what we were talking about earlier was kind of uh, expectations uh, versus what we can actually achieve. Um, we, we, we've had a few people on who've said they are Hughes out. Um, I don't know if you want to give us your personal opinion or do you, do you think... Yeah, that's it, fine, yeah. Do you, do you think? Um, do you think we expect too much of Stoke now? Um, our expectations have gone up, haven't they? Um, I don't know. That's a bad thing. Hughes, as always said, hasn't he? he? Wants to raise expectations. He wants to live up to them. Um, I, I think, for the most part, this season Stoke have actually, when they've played against the teams from the bottom half, they've looked on a different level um, when they play against Sunderland or, or anybody down there or Watford uh, but when they play against the team from the top it's the same same again uh, it just seems like the, the division is really split into three this year Leicester woke up everyone last last season the big six are going all out everyone knows this already but it is deflating when you lose still um, I don't uh, uh, Mark uses uh, uh, his reign hasn't been perfect. The squad still seems a little bit imbalanced, but I think he might point out that he's trying to bring young players through perhaps and open doors where perhaps we've had fringe players filling up spaces on the bench over the last couple of years. People like um, uh, Stephen Allen perhaps when he, when he was a, a, a one, taking up one of the sub spots that perhaps he's opening a door for someone like Julian Ngoy. It's a difficult step to make. Um, you have to have trust in, you, in the players that you're bringing through. Um, 
this year could have been better, but it could have been worse. I, I don't think we're in a situation to panic. Um, we'll, we'll see how the next couple of months go. Um, do you have a sort of expectation? Oh, was, that answer, was that answer vague enough? Yeah, <laughs> it was It was perfect. Um, do you have a sort of expectation for where we should be looking to finish? Um, I think we, we said earlier that our squad is good enough for the top half, but whether we'll actually achieve that again this season is is a different question. Uh, yeah, top half, I think. They'd be disappointed if they didn't get in the top half. Um, and so they should be, really. They have got a good squad. We shouldn't overlook the fact that Jack Butland, <laughs> one of our star players, has been out for um, for a year. Um, difficult spot to sell. Tonky is so important. I think Lee Grant's been fantastic. Um, but it, it does have a knock-on effect. Um, yeah, top, top half. I, I still think they'll do it. The um, first couple of years under Hughes, the, the run-ins were great. Uh, especially the first year were fantastic against the season. And he's got to hope he pulls off something like that again. If, if, you, have a, if you have a good two months, <laughs> it can take you a long way. Well, it's been a long time coming, but we've finally got a former Stoke player on the podcast. Leon Court was, as you well know, a vital part to our promotion in 2008. Signing for a club record fee of £1 million, Leon formed a solid partnership with Ryan Shawcross as Tony Pulis's men fired their way to the Premier League. Thanks in no small part, thanks to Leon's ability in both boxes, we achieved promotion on the final day at Leicester. And he's very generously given up his time to speak to us. How did you move to Stoke come about? Um, it first started, I was at Palace and um, Peter Taylor got the sack from Palace. He's the one who brought me in there. And then Neil Warnock came in. Um, but I don't think I was his cup of tea. I wasn't his cup of tea as a manager. And we decided that, um, you know, best for me to move on if the opportunity came around. And fortunately, um, pretty much straight away, um, I found out that, uh, that um, Tony Pulis was interested um yeah you were you were doing okay at palace i think did you win the player of the season uh one season for them and then uh it sort of didn't ha- didn't happen for you the next season was that a bit of a, a culture shock moving because you're a london boy and was that a culture shock moving from palace to stoke um not really i mean yeah i was i was quite you know personally quite successful at palace um the team wasn't like doing really what really well it should have done but uh, me personally, I've done pretty well there, player of the year, as you just said, and whatnot. Um, second year wasn't as great because there was a lot of changes and, you know, falling out with the manager and whatnot. But in terms of a culture shock, not really because I come from Hull to okay. Palace. So, um, you know, I, I've lived up north, like pretty far up north. You know, Hull's a, lot, a long way. And I enjoyed it there. But I was happy to get back down to London. Then obviously I had to move back up north again. OK. Um how does Tony Pulis compare with the other managers you've played under? What's he like on the training pitch? Um, for me, um, working with him, he was one of the best. The reason being because he was um, he treated everybody the same. You know, everyone was on an even kill. He didn't he didn't care if your name was, um, you know, Joe Bloggs to Ricardo Fuller or Tunchai Sanley. He didn't care who you were. You were getting treated the same. And if he didn't want to be there, you would leave. And that and that and that's what I really respected as him because, you know, you felt like you belonged there, 
with him. You know, he felt that, you know, all you had to do was you know, just perform and you would get a chance. And I did really respect that. Yeah. When he signed you, did he explicitly say, I'm going for a promotion this season? Or was it a case of uh, just kind of how to see how the season went? Because in that promotion season, the season you signed, it did come as a bit of a shock that we were doing so well. Yeah, he did. He didn't mention anything about promotion, to be fair. Not one of the coaches did when I when I first went there. They said that, you know, we want to try and bring in players to help the football club and uh, we take it from there. And that's, that's all he said, really. OK. Um, he's got a sort of reputation as Tony for a uh, like, very defensive mindset, set a lot of emphasis on set pieces. Uh, what Was it... Was that style kind of drilled into you? Was there was it a lot of uh, work every day on defensive training, or did he not get enough credit for uh, trying different kinds of football? Um, I think it's a bit of both, to be fair. I think that his defensive work, work and his tactics on defence is spot on. I don't, I don't think there's a lot better out there than him to get set pieces right and uh, defensive unit shape. Um, on the other aspect of going forward, I, you know, as I'm old now and I look at it, he does for me, need to start uh, implementing that into his game more for people to really take him serious as a top, top manager. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you signed on loan, didn't you? And then you made that permanent in January and you are a record signing, I believe, at that point. Do mm. players, like, care about transfer fees? Do, because I, I, I always hear from ex-players, like, oh, the transfer fee didn't bother me, you know, you just got to concentrate your own, on your own game. But did part of you think I'm I'm stoked record signing? That's that's quite that's quite something. Yeah, you know what the funny thing is, like um, you're right. Players don't really think about that because you could be Stokes record signing, and then you know at the end of the season you could be Stokes number one flop yeah. if you don't if you don't perform. So you know it's a catch twenty two. It's a good thing and it's, it can can be a bad thing. Um. You went a long period of time for Stoke without uh, ever picking up a booking, which was quite remarkable. Did you? Did that happen by accident? I know you no player uh, like goes out looking for bookings, but um, what do you put that down to? Good positional sense. <laughs> I, don't uh, okay. I don't know. Do you know what? Like that's that's the problem I had with Warnock because Warnock thought I wasn't ang- uh, aggressive enough. But for me, that's that was my argument because I did feel I was aggressive. I would. Uh, get right tight to set the forwards and whatnot, but I'm not just going to cause a silly foul in a dangerous area for someone to step up with, for instance, say Liam Lawrence's quality and just whipping a free kick in the top corner just so I can prove that I can get a booking. It's just it's ridiculous. If uh, you know, I always said if if a booking's there to be got and I need to I need to do it to save the team, I would do it. But I never really found myself in that position. Uh, yeah, you mentioned there about um, Liam Lawrence's delivery, and uh, as I said before, there was like we were really good at set pieces in this promotion season and when we got up to the Premier League. Um, how does how did our set pieces then sort of com- compare to other teams you played in? Um, thinking the, the Delap long throws in particular. Mm. Yeah, it, 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 it was a dream because I felt that obviously I could bring something in the opposition box. You know, I knew that from my whole career. And when I came to Stoke, for Pulis to really concentrate on getting the right people in the right areas, the right delivery. I knew I'd score goals and it was refreshing to go to a team which really practiced on that because no matter what football you watch from League One to two or League One to three, whatever, you see goals from set pieces every week and it's it's so vital 
and Pulis realised that and he saw an opportunity for the amount of big players that we had to really capitalise on that. So it was nice to be involved in a team like that. Um, that promotion season, was there a moment that you you sort of knew we were going up? Was there a particular game or a match where you thought, this is on now, this is happening? Yeah, I think it was um, West Brom at home. I feel like Ricky scored a hat-trick. Yeah, that game really was the one that, you know, for me, said that, you know, we, we've got a massive, massive chance here. Even though it went down to the wire, more or less, you know, we still felt that, you know, we were going to do it. Yeah. Um, what, what was Rick like in the dressing room? Because he always played with uh, a kind of, you know, a love of the game. He, he was uh, temperamental, I think it's fair to say, but uh, <laughs> kind of... When he when he was playing well, he played with a big smile on his face. What was he like uh, around the dressing room? He was brilliant. He was brilliant. He always tried to encourage to get people going. You know, me and him had our falling outs when he felt I wasn't defending properly. I'd have a go at him when I felt he wasn't running enough. But the thing with Rick, you know what he's like. He could be quiet for 80 minutes and all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, just piece of magic that he's created himself and go and get you out of a hole. And he'd done that against Scunthorpe at home. Uh, that Friday night game, I think it was, it was a big game for us. And without him that day, we probably wouldn't have got anything out of the game. But because of his magic, he had that ability to really like turn it on, turn the game on its head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, someone else who uh, signed for us in that promotion season was Ryan Shawcross. Um, I think a lot of people saw you as a bit of a mentor to Ryan Shawcross. He was a, a young lad then. It, I think it was his first sort of full season as a professional. Uh, what was he like to, to work with and did you notice his game sort of develop over the course of the season? Yeah, I mean, when he first, you know, first started, I, was, I wasn't I was there when he first came out. I missed the first 10 games. And then when I came in to join him, there were just little things that, you know, he needed to, to tweak in terms of like um, some positional sense and sometimes not let strikers wind him up because, like, you know, still Van back to Blake, for example, I remember a game was trying to wind him up and Ryan was taking the bait. I say, Ryan, just leave it like, you know, you, you know, you're better than that. Don't get involved in it. I always knew Ryan was going to be a top player. I always knew he was going to go further than me. But what, it, what I had at that time, I had experience over him, which I could show him something to take on. And hopefully yeah. he, he, he did learn something from me because I knew he, he knew he was going to go further than me. But it's just I could give him something that I've learned. And uh, obviously, when we got promoted, uh, we were pretty much written off straight away. Um in in that first game away at Bolton where we lost three one, did you think ah perhaps we've uh, perhaps we've gone this is a step step up too far or did you just kind of have to write it off as a as a bad day? It was it was, it was a bad day I believe I think um, as you said a lot of people wrote us off but you know the the great thing at that time was like Pulis did not believe that we couldn't do it. And I, and I seriously do believe that he felt that. And what, what he did do really well after losses um, in the Premier League when we first went up, he didn't dwell on them. He just he not so much washed them away and didn't work on anything that we mistakes we made. He did, but he didn't dwell on them. And we moved on to the next one because we knew it was going to be a tough season anyway. So that, that defeat at Bolton, he didn't actually dwell on it. We tried to address the mistakes that we made. And then hopefully after that, we did improve a little bit. And uh, the very next game was a amazing 3-2 win over Aston Villa. Um, you know, the the atmosphere, uh, from a f- fan's perspective, it just rocketed up from the Championship to the 
Premier League, did this atmosphere sort of play a part in us eventually staying up? Oh, without doubt, without doubt. The noise levels, the decibel levels at the, at the Britannia at the time was just incredible. Like you're not, you're not going to find another stadium probably in the Premier League that gives that much noise. Even you go to Old Trafford, there, there's like a morgue there sometimes. Like you know, you, you go to Hull, um, it's not Hull, you go to Stoke, it's totally different. And when you're on that pitch, you know, even though one side of the stadium's open. It's like a cauldron inside there, and like you feel like the fans are right behind you. It's it's an unbelievable feeling that you can't really describe until you're actually on that field. Brilliant. Um, sort of going back to the promotion season, uh, who were the other sort of uh, big characters in the dressing room? Because from the fans' perspective, we know who the the main guys were. They were like Rick and Liam Lawrence and and you mm. and Ryan at the back. Mm. Were there any sort of characters in the dressing room? that you maybe feel were a bit underrated or uh, didn't get enough credit? Um, there's a number. There's, everyone played their part at the time. Everyone played their part because even though they weren't, they might not have been that vocal out on the pitch and whatnot, you know, you look at players like, you know, did people like Danny Pugh and people like that and, you know, Carl Dickinson and, you know, players around it, even players that weren't involved so much like Don Matteo and, you know, they were big figures in the dressing room. They'd always come in and, you know, give the boys a good like encouragement before the game and the, the good thing about that that season 2002 2007 2008 was the whole unit was together even the ones who weren't playing and that is very rare in football for everyone even on the fringes to be consolidated together and that that was a huge thing that we had yeah how do you set up for a Rory Delap long throw say say he's got the ball uh sort of in line with the 18 yard box yeah. Are, you, are you thinking, is there a set plan? He's going to throw it to that position and I need to connect with it there. Or is it kind of uh, yeah, anticipating what might happen? Yeah. Do you know what? The thing is, we because we worked on it every day with him, we knew the trajectory he could get on the ball and the flatness that he was throwing it. It took the opposition by surprise every single week because they didn't know how it was coming in we knew where we had to run we knew we had to get someone around the back post we knew we had to get someone across the keeper we knew we had to get someone across the front post and if all those areas were not covered Pulis would go absolutely ape in the dressing room at us for not covering those areas so we knew we had to cover those areas and every time we did cover those areas we almost got a chance from it so it's, it's about knowing the trajectory that Rory could throw it from and we all, we all knew what it was like uh, that that obviously was a was used in our promotion season, but it seemed like it was more successful in the Premier League. Was this uh, perhaps because Premier League defenders just aren't used to it? Without a doubt, they hated it. They hated it. I remember a couple of games um, that I watched. Uh, I think it was a, uh, I think it was Spurs. I think Gomez was in goal for Spurs, and he just didn't know what hit him. He, he just didn't know how to deal with it. And uh, you know, you look at a lot of the top defenders as well, like Saul Campbell's, and that when he's at Newcastle coming to the Brit. He didn't, even the size of Saul Campbell didn't even like it. Like, you know, it's just, it, it was horrible for them to deal with and they didn't like it. Um, obviously, uh, that first season up, you started in the team, but you, opportunities were a bit limited. Uh, I think Abdullah had come in and mm. he sort of developed a partnership with Ryan. Uh, yeah. did, did you feel frustrated at the time about not getting games? Did you perhaps feel that you had more to offer? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I don't think there's any player that would say they can't do it. But the thing is, at the time, that Abdullah came in, he had much more Premier League experience than me and he hit the ground running at Stoke. He was immense in that season. 
Ryan was obviously um, was there for the future for Stoke as well. He was coming to be the Stoke icon he is now. Um, it was frustrating for me, obviously, because I thought I could do more. But the thing is, though, when you got to the Premier League and you've got that money to play with, you know, you can bring in people like Hoof and, you know, Abdullah Fai and people like that with much more Premier League experience. What are you going to do? You, of course you're going to do it. You know, you're not going to worry about Leon Court and his feelings. You know, you're yeah. going to worry about the team. And that's what that's what that's what happens in football. And I took it on the chin and you move on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as a defender, then, what kind of players are the worst for you uh, to to come up against? Do you relish the physical battle with like a a big old fashioned number nine, or do you hate playing against like the the tricky pacier type of forwards? Do you have a particular kind of uh, forward that kind of gets under your skin? Yeah, it's the ones who like you know they're dropping the dropping the holes, dropping to midfield because you don't know whether you should go with them. It's the ones with the you know the little the little niggly annoying ones like you know the, you know like the kind of like Suarezy ones. Yeah, those ones are all over the place. Like you know, yeah, they're, they're the ones I really annoy. The big ones I don't really mind, but it's more obvious when they're dominating you because you don't win a header and it gets a bit embarrassing. <laughs> but um, no, nah, it's, it's the little niggly ones, yeah. Any uh, players you've played against in your career, specifically, you just went off the pitch thinking, bloody hell, he's done me, done me yeah. there. Yeah, God, how long you got? Um, <laughs> you know, they, the one that stands out in my mind was actually in the Premier League, uh, it was it was Tevez. Okay. He, yeah, he was just, uh, he was just when he was at Man City, his movement was just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and uh, how did you... How did you see the end of your career at Stoke? Uh, was it just a case of you needed to to move on to be playing first team games? Yeah, basically, I was coming to an age where I needed to be playing to keep my sharpness. Um, it was frustrating the way I left, but obviously that that's what happens when you when you get promotion sometimes and everyone's not involved. I just wanted to go sooner rather than later because I needed to play and keep my fitness. I went to Burnley. I hadn't played a Stoke game in a while. I went to Burnley. Did you know? Played there, but it was frustrating because my fitness wasn't what it was. Because um, I was hit, going to a team which was struggling as well, so that was frustrating. But yeah, it's disappointing the way I left. I didn't want to leave on that on that way, but that's what happens. Um, so playing Palace next week, obviously you uh, foot in both camps there. Um, what do you make of uh, Stoke at the moment? Do you do you see it as being much different to when we were in the Premier League under Pulis. Do you think Mark Hughes has done a good job? I do, I do. I think that it's a, there's a lot of different things. I think they're playing better football now. I think that um, they're not as strong as on set pieces as mm. they once were. I feel they they've got a lot of frailties there, especially on the defending set pieces. They seem a bit you can you can get at them a bit, which is quite rare for a Stoke side. But I think when I watch them on Signal Radio, when I do the commentary, sometimes I'm very very impressed by what they've got I think they are not far away at all from really you know I think they're probably a striker short of really getting up there in the Premier League um, I don't think they get enough credit for how good they are yeah. to be honest with you um, and I think you know give them a bit more time maybe a bit more money Mark Hughes can really you know get something going but now you just say they've got Berahino now so he might be the one they're looking for yeah uh, let's hope so anyway um, finally Leon, before I let you go, uh, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm doing my um, my academy, my football academy. Well, no, that's starting in April. 
doing a bit of signal radio. So I'm just pretty, you know, pretty busy with that kind of stuff at the moment. You know, just trying to keep busy and uh, get my academy running. Okay, excellent. Uh, Leon, um, I think on behalf of everyone who sort of watched Stoke go up, I think you were a massive part of that team. So uh, you you should always uh, be entitled to a free drink in Stoke whenever you're down <laughs> here. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, and thank you very much for talking to us. No, anytime, anytime. No problem. Thanks, David. So my name is Martin Cook. I'm a PTA and research associate at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, I'm also a PhD student studying sports history. Um, so this paper is the first chapter of my PhD thesis, which is basically looking at how football started in Staffordshire, um, all the potteries, as I sort of put it. Um, the paper is the first one of its kind. There haven't been any historical academic studies done in the potteries in terms of football before, um, so this is the first one. Um, and hopefully this is the first of four or five in the next four or five years. Um, in short, the paper basically looks at the development of football at the start of the 19th century. Um, and from a Stoke City's perspective, it looks at how the club was formed. It looks about the myths around the club's origins. Um, it gives information about the founder of the club and also some of the key early personnel that shaped the club and also shaped how football developed um, as the century wore on, basically. So um, it's my first paper. I'm quite excited to see how people react to it and respond to it and the feedback I get. Okay, excellent. Um, you mentioned the, 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 the sort of uh, myths and legends about uh, Stoke and Stoke's formation. Uh, what are some of the, the big myths that we, we, we were all told but aren't actually true? I, I think I'm quite similar to many Stoke fans in terms of um, I've always looked at 1863 and just assumed that that was the date. Um, I've never really looked really in depth into the history of the club until this PhD started. The main myth really is that the club was formed in 1863. Um, by four public school students from Charterhouse. Um, and basically what this paper does is it sort of disproves that theory. Okay. Um, and a little bit later on, there's also a, a theory around the club starting because of a teacher called John Witter Thomas, um, who was supposedly forming the club in 1863 as part of his, um, his school work. But again, that's something this paper sort of disproves. So, um, from that perspective, I'm throwing hand grenades around a little bit, um, and we're just starting to break up these myths, and basically we're just improving the, the truth behind the formation of the club, really. Okay. Um, one of the things your paper talks about is kind of how important Stoke and uh, Stoke the Potteries was uh, in sort of shaping the development of football in Britain, could you talk a, a bit about that? Yeah, so the Potteries in Stoke and Stafford has never really been considered as being a major player in terms of how football developed, or modern football at least. People always talk about um, Sheffield 
who had one of the years clubs, people took on Manchester and, and Birmingham. But in actual fact, a lot of the work and a lot of the developments that happened in Stoke influenced the surrounding regions. So if we look at something like the Staffordshire FA, one of the earliest formed FAs, the fourth oldest, which is really early, um, predates um, Liverpool, predates certain ones down south, predates the northern ones. Um, and if you look at the competitions that we ran from that Staffordshire FA, we attracted teams more across the country or all across the Midlands. Um, so you'll see Aston Villa, Warsaw, people like that. So as a region, at the start or the mid of the 19th century, it wasn't just a fact of Stoke playing a few games against other Staffordshire football clubs. There were clubs more across the Midlands playing sort of in this region. Um, people like Thomas Slaney, who formed VFA, um, he also helped to spread the game across into Manchester. There were lots of um, county fixtures which Stoke City arranged will sort of spread the game across the wider Midlands area. So what this paper also promotes is that in actual fact Stoke played a much bigger part in developing the, the modern game in the UK than it's previously been thought. Uh, one figure that uh, you mentioned in your sort of press release is uh, T.C. Slaney, is it? Who, yes. Um, is he responsible for bringing Stoke to prominence as one of uh, the leading clubs in the country? Yeah, definitely. Um, the strange thing about the formation of Stoke was that the founder, um, who was this guy called Harry Ormond, um, he actually left the club after the first game. And if you actually look at the players and the personnel who started that first season almost in 1868, um, half of the team, or most of them, had disappeared um, by the time the 1870s had come around. Thomas Slaney came in and he was elected captain and secretary at the same time, which basically gave him free reign to run the club as he saw fit. Um, under his sort of watch, you can see the growth in Stowe City. You could see them travelling further afield to play fixtures. You saw them travelling to Nottingham, to Manchester. You saw them travelling down south. Eventually trips up to Scotland, which was seen as a, a big feature back then. Um, so if you track and measure the growth of Stoke City, it really starts to expand when he steps into the fold as captain and then as secretary. Um, and you can clearly see that I measure that as a pathway through. So this guy is sort of regarded as being the first manager of Stoke City, which probably is a little bit of a loose term, um, as managers didn't really exist back then. But he was certainly the guy that really drove forward the development of the club and turned it really from just a, a group of amateur players into a club that was selected for the Football League. So one of the 12 leagues. Fantastic. And uh, if... Uh, people want to give give your work a read. Where can they find it? Um, it's can be found on the Taylor and Francis website um, or the Journal for Soccer and Society. Um, the title of the paper is Myths, Truths and Pioneers. So if you put that into Google, it will pop up um, straight away from the first choices. It's free access, free to download for a limited time only, um, another two or three weeks. So feel free to go and download it, grab it, 
have a read and, and see what you think.